In the 1980s, the government of Guatemala banned any public reciting of Mary's Magnificat because it was deemed to be politically subversive. In the early portion of the 20th century, the British government, or should I say the British Empire, banned the use of Mary's song in worship services in colonialized, occupied India because of fear that its explosive proclamations would embolden oppressed people. In the late 1970s and the early 1980s in Argentina, during the period known as the Dirty Wars, the mothers of the disappeared protested daily the loss of their sons and daughters, which tallied more than 30,000 of them. And they posted signs of Mary's words, the Magnificat, at the Plaza de Mayo in the capital city of Buenos Aires. So what did the military dictatorship that had kidnapped and killed all those missing children do to respond to these daily protests? Well, one of many things they did was to outlaw Mary's words. Mary's song, the Magnificat, which in Latin means, my soul glorifies the Lord. Communist, democratic, and tyrant forms of government, historically and worldwide, have banned this song because they believed it's politically subversive. Mary's beautiful, poetic, gentle song, banned for being viewed as treasonous. Does this surprise you at all? It is. If you read this song through the eyes of oppressed people, through the eyes of citizens who lack basic liberties, like the ability to just freely say what you think and freely write what you think and freely put in your publications and your newspapers what you actually think, or if you lack the basic freedoms to worship as you want, or just to acquire basic needs. Such a bold plea as this for justice is an act of subversion. Verses 51 through 53, from those eyes, listen to what it says. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Many of us here do not consider ourselves to be part of the rich or to be part of the ruling class. So we don't necessarily think that this song here might be directed toward us or directed toward the church. And we tend to spiritualize these words as if these words here have nothing to do with real life. We're more accustomed to think of Mary as this tender, motherly, nurturing quiet part of the Christmas story. But I have to tell you today that, that, that is, nothing could be further from the truth. Mary's song cannot be separated from the life that she experienced as a poor woman living in an occupied country. She and all of her people were powerless nobodies. And frankly, they were deemed as helpless in the eyes of Rome. And when she speaks of the proud being brought low and rulers being dethroned, this is in a real world context that she's referring to with real power and real authority and real consequences for anybody who speaks out against uh, this government. And when Mary speaks of people being scattered who are proud and in control, she is saying, 
justice has finally arrived. God is going to reverse the injustices of this life through His Son, Jesus. And this is why this song has become a theme song for many oppressed people throughout the world. Like the song We Shall Overcome was to the African-American community in America in the height of the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 1960s. We shall overcome. We shall walk hand in hand. We shall all be free. We're not afraid. We are not alone. The whole wide world around, we shall overcome. We cannot miss that Mary's song is a song of protest against unjust rule. Certainly oppressed peoples worldwide resonate with this song and tyrannical governments recognize the power of this song. That's why they continually try to ban it. And to this day, Mary's song is recognized for its significance and power in the black church in America. From the overthrowing of slavery, to the defeat of Jim Crow laws, to the advancement of voting rights for all of America's citizens, to the cessation of the atrocious lynchings that are part of history in our country and black history in our country, to the civil rights movement, to the ongoing desire for equal treatment under the law. And the fact that history of black people in America cannot be sanitized or whitewashed, but it actually should be taught the way it happened. What actually happened on slavery plantations and with all the lynchings and all the mutilations and all of the oppression and the Jim Crow laws, how that made life so horrible for black people in America and the suppression of voting and the not teaching of black history like the Tulsa Massacre or uh, the banning of children's books in schools like Ruby goes to school. Leanne Younger, an African-American woman and fellow covenant pastor, writes, Ruby Bridges was six years old in 1960 when she entered William France Elementary School in New Orleans. She and her mother walked to school, escorted by four federal marshals every day for an entire year. She had class alone because only one teacher agreed to teach her. She ate alone and played alone. Her parents and extended family suffered significant economic losses because they believed that a new day was coming for black students in Louisiana. Recently, school boards and parent groups around the country have found the story of the six-year-old Ruby so troubling that teachers are afraid. Some teachers are afraid to teach it because they might lose their jobs. The children's book, Ruby Goes to School, has in some cases been included on lists of books designated to be banned. Apparently, the story is too powerful to unleash on young children. For some people, the promise of a new day doesn't feel like good news. The story of Ruby Bridges isn't just about who she is. It's about the hope embodied in her daily walk to school. It's about the family and community who believed that a better day was possible. Ruby and her community believed there would be an end to educational injustice in real time. Mary lived centuries before Ruby's story. But Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55, reveals that she too had expectations of an end to injustice in real time. We traditionally refer to this passage as Mary's song. 
But I think, she says, uh, Reverend Younger says, I think our never-ending wall of streaming sound makes it hard for us to understand Mary's song as the rallying cry that it is, rather than as a comforting serenade or pop anthem that we're used to hearing. Reverend Younger goes on to say, Mary didn't just sing. As we say in the black church, she sang. She sang. It's been a long time in coming, but she prophesied that change was going to come. And Mary's song expresses here a profound message. God is going to do His good work for His own glory. Now, to understand this in the context uh, of this passage, we need to understand two very important details from Mary's life. One is the world in which she lived, and the other is her view of God in this world in which she lived. So, let's look at the first one, the historical context, which is Mary's life in Herod the Great's world. Now, last week we talked a lot about Caesar Augustus, the emperor of Rome at the time of Christ's birth, and how Mary's song was viewed as a strong denunciation of all that Caesar believed and all that Caesar Augustus stood for. Now, along with Mary's song speaking out against the emperor, it also directly called out the brutal king of Israel, Herod the Great, who in many respects affected Jewish people's lives daily even more than Augustus did. Now, the history of Herod the Great goes back in his family to the last period of Israel's independence, which had ushered in through the Maccabean Revolt. So, Israel got to be a sovereign nation for a period of 69 years in literally a thousand-year-plus period. Going back into the 8th century B.C. when the Assyrians came in and dominated the northern kingdom, then the Babylonians came in in the 7th century and wiped out the southern kingdom and hauled people off into captivity. Then the Medo-Persians came in and conquered the Babylonians and they took over Israel. Then after that, the Greeks came in and then the Syrophoenicians. And then this Maccabean revolt and 69-year period of sovereignty and then all of a sudden, the Romans come along, and the Romans dominated the region for over four centuries. So there's 10 centuries plus and 69 years of sovereignty in all of this. Well, Herod's grandfather, when the Romans came in, his grandfather was named Antipas, Antipater I, and he began working the angles with the Roman government to gain power for himself, and thus he was appointed governor of Idumea. Antipas's son, Antipater II, because he was Idumean and Jewish, was unable to be king and high priest in Israel. So what he did was, behind the scenes, go around and convince those in those roles, who was king, the one who was king, and the one who was the high priest in Israel, of his hereditary rights to these roles. So not holding these positions publicly, what he basically did was ran these posts from behind the scenes. Not unlike some modern politics in America where you may have a figurehead who's in office, but it's really people who are behind the scenes who haven't been elected or who haven't been vetted for any cabinet post whom we may not even really know who might be running things, maybe even running things in our country. This is the way it was with Antipater II. 
Well, his son, Herod the Great, comes on the scene in 47 B.C. as a 25-year-old. And he's made governor of Galilee. And at first, he was liked by the Galilean Jews and the Romans because of his efficient leadership. He kept things orderly in the region. And part of what Herod did was he cozied up to the Romans every chance he could. When they needed a military conflict and and he could step in and help and and dominate someone, he did that. When he needed to put down a rebellion, he did that. When he needed to raise money for Rome, he raised money for Rome. When the Romans had victory uh, celebrations anywhere near Uh, where he was located, he would travel to those locations and he would be part of the festivities and he would give gifts and praise and money and all this stuff to the Romans. Herod the Great was good at promoting his brand. Herod the Great. And anything that that was for his self-interest, he would do all he could to advance. Herod had ten wives which also created alliances with all kinds of foreign rulers and influencers in the Middle East. And he became king of the Jews in 37 B.C. And twice when he fell out of their favor, which he did many times, but two different occasions when he really fell out of favor with the Jewish people, he simply lowered their taxes to get back into their good graces. He also did all kinds of public works in Israel, rebuilding and remodeling the temple. Thus, at the time Jesus was born, the temple was known at that time as Herod's temple. He built the Hippodrome. He built the amphitheaters. He built all kinds of other public works. And he built an incredible palace for himself. And he taxed all the people of Israel to pay for that. Heavily he taxed them. Herod the Great was a brutal tyrant who had many people executed for the slightest infraction. Even during his reign, he executed some members of the Sanhedrin, which was the religious ruling, you know, governing agency in, in Israel. And he even went that far. He was also paranoid that people were out to usurp his throne. And of course, all of his wives wanted their sons to get to be the next king of the Jews. So there was a lot of jockeying for position that was going on. And two times during his reign and in his lifetime, Herod actually redid his will because a wife or a son would fall out of his favor. So, oh, he's going to redo his will. And then another one would fall out of his favor. Boom, he redoes his will again. Herod the Great was also notorious for putting his wives from time to time under house arrest when he feared that one of their family members or through some of their connections were trying to take him out. And if he would ever go and meet with any of them, he would give his officers and and his security detail instructions having them under house arrest. And if I'm injured, anything happens to me, you kill him. That's his wife, one of his wives. You You just kill him. On the spot. And, uh, you know, because of that, he got quite a reputation for doing this, and it actually deterred a few coups uh, during his reign. Over Herod's tenure, he had numerous members of his family assassinated, including his wives, uh, some of his wives, and some of his sons, if he viewed them at all to be rivals to his throne. This is why. In the account of Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 17, the visit of the Magi to Jesus is so poignant. It gives us a firsthand glimpse of how paranoid Herod the Great truly was. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to that text. I want to read it to you and explain it to help us understand the historical context of Mary's song just a little bit better. Verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of 
King Herod, and that's Herod the Great here. Magi, which are wise men, astrologers, some of them might have been magicians, from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was what? He was disturbed. He's upset. He's bent out of shape. I mean, this is the guy who's killed his own sons, killed his own wives to protect his throne. And you want to tell me someone else is coming in and is going to take over my throne? What? And all Jerusalem with him. I mean, they have everything they can do. They've got their hands full dealing with Herod the Great. And now we're going to have a competing king? What in the world is all of this? When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, where's the Messiah who is to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly. Okay? He doesn't want to have this discussion in front of everybody else. He's going to have it and found exactly the time when the star had appeared. These magi could have come from as far away as Persia, 900 plus miles. So in order for them to travel following this star, that appearing would have had to have been a couple of months before, if not even a little longer. So he wanted to know the exact date. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. This is vintage Herod the Great speaking out of both sides of his mouth. Whatever he can do to advance himself and advance his brand, to, to uh, keep his throne as, as he desires it to be, he will do whatever, so even if it means lying, even if it means being a hypocrite, even if it means, oh, let me come and worship him too. He doesn't want to worship him. He wants to know. He wants information. That's it. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. It gives you the appearance that the star came up again or it, it shone brightly again uh, to guide them. And when they saw the star, they were over joyed on coming to the house and and get this now joseph and mary are living in a house and they're living in bethlehem this is why in church history this is referred to as the epiphany because these wise men came at a later time it will generally be looked at in church calendars coming up later in january is when it would be celebrated but when they saw that star they were overjoyed and on coming to the house they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Very valuable gifts. Of course, this is why historically, you know, the hymn was created, We Three Kings of Orient and Ar, is because of the three gifts. But we don't know they were kings for sure because they were magicians and astrologers and magi and leaders. And we also don't know that there were three. It perhaps were as many as 12 that could have come. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So they went a different way to go back home. And when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up. He said, take the child and his mother, and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, 
for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. I mean, in haste, in the middle of the night, they evacuate. Go right now. Verse 14, so he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod and so was fulfilled what the Lord said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. That's a normal state for Herod. He was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Did a little math. Remember back when they first saw the star, how long it took them to journey there. Then the period of time that they went to Bethlehem and how long the lapse of time has been since he's heard. And he added it all together and added on both ends. And he's like, okay, anybody under two years old, that's it. I mean, if you kill his own sons and kill his own wives, this is no big deal. doesn't even make the evening news to, to kill off a bunch of little babies like this. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now I direct your attention back to Luke chapter 1, to the time when Mary is being told that she is going to have this immaculate conception, this Emmanuel, this child, God with us. She's going to bear God's son. And verse 31 says, you will conceive and give birth to a son. And you are to call him Jesus. That in Hebrew is Yeshua. That means deliverer, savior. In Matthew, it tells us you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The message is loud and clear. And look at verse 32 now. He will be great. Hear that in the context of over four decades of having a brutal dictator known as Herod the Great, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. He will be great. Not Herod the Great, Jesus the Great, the rightful inhabitor of the throne, a descendant of David, not some foreign Idumean imposter who uses force, brutality, bribery, manipulation, and the like to hang on to his throne. Jesus the Great will reign forever, and his kingdom will never end. So when you read all of these words in Mary's song, within the historical context of Herod the Great's corruption, it takes on a different tone, doesn't it? Verse 50, His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation in God's kingdom. There will be mercy. There will be compassion. There's no compassion right now, but there will be compassion. He has performed mighty deeds in His arm, with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. You know, those that got to hang on to their throne like Herod the Great. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Those that have taxed us to death are going to end up with nothing. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful, to be compassionate to them, to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised 
our ancestors. Herod's days of taxing Israel, of flaunting her laws, and dotting the landscape with pagan shrines were numbered. Mary's announcement is that justice has finally arrived. God is going to do His work for His own glory. And it's not going to be about Herod's dynasty. It's going to be about advancing the Davidic dynasty and that being fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Well, we've spoken in great lengths today about Mary's world and the time that she lived in Herod the Great. But the other important part of this equation we need to grasp is Mary's faith. Her faith and belief in God. In fact, Mary's view of God is what you would call a very high view. And her song here is all about God. Listen to what it says about God. I I listed these out, and there's 11 statements she makes. Number one, the mighty one has done great things for me. Number two, holy is his name. Number three, his mercy extends to those who fear him. The fourth thing she says is he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. The fifth is that he has scattered those who are proud. The sixth is he has brought down rulers from their thrones. The seventh is he has lifted up the humble. The eighth thing she says is he has filled the hungry with good things. The ninth is he has sent the rich away empty. Number ten is he has helped his servant Israel. And the eleventh statement made there is he has remembered to be merciful. Did you hear all that? God is all over Mary's song. God is omnipresent. God is mighty. God is holy. And God, unlike Herod, is merciful. And Mary is so certain of God's promises that were given to her through the archangel Gabriel that she states every one of these acts about God in the past tense. Did you notice that? What God has done. They haven't even occurred yet. I mean, she's probably only a matter of days into her pregnancy here. And in her mind and in her faith, these are all fulfilled. They're as good as done. God has done this, and Herod's days are numbered. Dr. Scott McKnight says, if we think of Mary's song being sung during Herod's political and social reign, which we don't tend to do as 21st century Westerners, but if we do think of it in that light, it can be summarized as this. Herod dethroned. Jesus enthroned. And again, imagine a first century poor, oppressed woman who had experienced the injustices of Herod the Great getting up and singing a song like this. It was treasonous, no doubt about it. It was subversive to the powers that be, saying that you want your coming son to be the next king of the Jews, and not that you want him to be, but he's going to be the next king of the Jews. I mean, you're saying that to Herod, who's this brutal, wicked tyrant who will do anything within his power to wipe you out? Not to mention, that doesn't play very well in his family with all of the wives that want their sons to be the next king of the Jews? That's not a message that's going to go over very well. And if a person pushed this message real hard, they could end up being tried for treason. And they could be sentenced to death. And maybe even death through crucifixion, and then to mock you in what you've done, they could even post a sign on the cross 
above your head, King of the Jews. Making a long story short, Jesus was crucified because he took the same kind of stand against oppressive leaders his mother Mary had, and he offered the very hope and help to the poor and needy that Mary prophesied in her song that he would. And keep in mind today as well that the same Holy Spirit who brought about the immaculate conception in Mary's womb, who brought us the incarnate Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. That same Holy Spirit who came down upon Jesus at his baptism and inspired him in his earthly life and ministry here on earth is the same Holy Spirit who inspired Mary's song of protest that's recorded for us in God's holy word. When we tend to think of Mary, the mother of Jesus at Christmas time, do we think of a young woman who went toe-to-toe with the Herod the Great over matters of daily injustice in Israel? I think for many of us who are not part of the oppressed world, I think that we have sort of a calm-down version of Mary. We've tamed her down to what the Bible actually teaches here, to just being a devout, passive, you know, motherly, pious mom of Jesus. However, much of the oppressed world takes a completely different view of Mary's words here, of Mary's song. And even the oppressive governments of the world take a different view than what many of us do. They all clearly recognize the meaning that's wrapped up in this song. And I have to tell you, we all would do well to do the same. After all, it's a song about the greatness and the merciful rule of our God. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you again for the opportunity you've granted to us to take a little slightly different look at Advent this year looking at the life of Mary, the servant that you chose to use, a servant who some churches and throughout history have venerated and revered in ways they shouldn't. But God, many others in our traditions, have underplayed Mary's role as well. And God, today, thank you for helping us understand within the historical context of these words that were put into Scripture what Mary was truly saying, what the Holy Spirit through her was truly saying in this song of protest, and what it truly means that justice has finally arrived in the person of Jesus Christ, and that by following Christ, we can continue His great work of these overcoming these injustices in this broken world, and ultimately one day in in glory, they'll all be erased forever. But God, thank you for this understanding today, and I pray that your church will grow because of it. In Jesus' name, amen.